Welcome to Torrents of Time. I am Olaf Baumann and today we take a look at one of the most notorious men in human history, the Roman Emperor Nero. Perhaps one of the most captivating portrayals of Emperor Nero is that of Sir Peter Ustinov in the 1951 movie Quo Vadis. He portrays Nero as a self-absorbed psychopath who collects his tears in little bottles for posterity to behold and who fiddles like a madman while Rome burns. This portrayal is basically how modern pop culture understands Nero. The question is, is that portrayal historically correct? Or is there more to the story of the emperor who was the first to persecute Christians on a large scale? And here is history's evil genius, Nero. Under the forehead of a demigod and the face of a beast, he was a drunkard and a sensualist, full of changing desires and swollen with fat and crime. So has history described him, and so he is recreated by Peter Ustinov in a magnificent performance. For his portrayal of Nero, Sir Peter Ustinov was nominated for an Oscar and he won a Golden Globe. It's a memorable performance that sums up how Nero lives in our collective memory. Justinov's fictional character is based on Henrik Sankiewicz's 1895 novel, Quo Vadis. The American journalist William Cooper Braun reviewed Quo Vadis, and he writes... 500 dreary pages, a lingering agony drawn out. It is neither entertaining nor instructive, and if a book is only bad enough, it is sure of popular success. The story is a love story between a Roman military officer and a Christian woman, and in the end, Jesus wins. The centerpiece of the story is a famous fire of Rome. And Braniero tries to recreate an image of burning Troy in epic verse. Unfortunately, he cannot quite get his poetry right because he has never seen a burning city. But every artist needs inspiration and so he tortures Rome. He hopes that witnessing the inferno of the burning city will enable him to sing verses that are fit for a god of poetry that he fancies himself. And so Justinus Nero watches Technicolor flames consume Rome while he plucks his lyre and sings, I am one with the gods immortal. I am Nero, the artist who creates with fire. Burn on all ancient Rome burn on. Roman emperors have a reputation to be lunatic mass murderers. That sounds more disgusting to us than to ancient Romans. They like their leaders brutal and determined. But there is hardly a Roman emperor who is more notorious than Nero. He wins the grand prize of deranged lunaticism. He was the fifth Roman emperor and the last of the Julio-Claudian dynasty. He was born on December 15th in 37 AD and died in 68 AD. And his reign from 54 to 68 AD is already in antiquity described as a reign of debauchery and madness. 
He was a great-great-grandson of Augustus, the first Roman emperor. Nero's family was already notorious before him. His grandfather had a reputation to be brutal, a lover of violent gladiator contest. His father was involved in a political scandal that would have cost him his life if Emperor Tiberius hadn't died before he was able to have him murdered. His mother Agrippina must have been one of the most prolific schemers of the early empire. She was a sister of Emperor Caligula, who had also the reputation to be a madman. He suspected her of adultery and had her alleged lover killed. She tried to overthrow Caligula. That didn't succeed and all the conspirators had their throats slit. However, Caligula must have had a warm spot in his heart for his sister Agrippina because he didn't kill her but only exile her. Soon after, Caligula was stabbed to death by his own Praetorian guard. And then Claudius became emperor. Agrippina managed to marry him and become his fourth wife. She had Claudius adapt Nero and declare him heir, and then, so ancient historians speculate, she poisoned the emperor. Nero became emperor at the age of 16. It seems he would have preferred a different career, and the senate speculates that Agrippina tried to rule through her son and some modern scholars think that the Roman Empire lost out because a woman like Agrippina could not become empress. She would have been the right woman to thrive in the cutthroat atmosphere of the Roman court. That may or may not be true, but if it were true, something went horribly wrong for Agrippina. As Nero grew older, he also grew more independent, and Agrippina lost influence on him. In the beginning of Nero's reign, mother and son appeared on coins together. In Rome, that did not have any mass media, coins served a propaganda purpose. Even in the most remote hovels of the empire, when the people bought their groceries, the faces on their money told them who called the shots in Rome. But over time, Agrippina's face disappeared from the coins that Nero struck. And then she gets in conflict with her son over his sexual affairs and marriage plans. Nero had rather peculiar tastes. Tacitus bears witness in his Annals, Book 15. Nero, to win credit for himself of enjoying nothing so much as the capital, prepared banquets in the public places and used the whole city, so to say, as his private house. Of these entertainments, the most famous for their notorious profligacy were those furnished by Tigellinus, which I will describe as an illustration that I may not have again and again to narrate similar extravagance. He had a raft constructed on Agrippa's lake, put the guests on board, and set it in motion by other vessels towing it. These vessels glittered with gold and ivory. The crews were arranged according to age and experience in vice. Birds and beasts had been procured from remote countries and sea monsters from the ocean. On the margin of the lake were set up brothels crowded with noble ladies, and on the opposite bank were seen naked prostitutes with obscene gestures and movements. As darkness approached, all the adjacent grove and surrounding buildings resounded with song and shone brilliantly with lights. Nero, who polluted 
himself by every lawful or lawless indulgence had not omitted a single abomination which could heighten his depravity, till a few days afterwards he stooped to marry himself to one of that filthy herd by name Pythagoras with all the forms of regular wedlock. The bridal veil was put over the emperor, people saw the witnesses of the ceremony, the wedding dower, the couch, and the nuptial torches. Everything in a word was plainly visible, which, even when a woman weds, darkness hides. Tacitus Annals Book 15 Morals are actually a huge factor in Roman politics. Appropriate behavior was constantly discussed in political speeches, in law courts, and in the Senate. Every five years, the Romans elected censors to purge their Senate rolls of people who were not rich enough or who lacked the appropriate morals to be a member of this distinguished body. Morals, or the lack thereof, was and is a political weapon that politicians love to wield in order to crush their opponents. But what the Romans consider to be moral is not the same as what we would consider to be moral. However, according to what Tacitus reports, Nero did fail the mark under any definition. Taste aside, having no moral backbone makes Nero politically vulnerable. His lack of moral screams for some senatorial savior to fly in and restore Rome's moral integrity with a coup. That usually means that the restorer of moral life slits Nero's throat and for good measure he also kills all his friends and all his family. Dynastic politics is not so much about exchanging ideas but about murdering the right people at the right time. It's carnage and mayhem. Nero's mother Agrippina is well-versed in imperial politics. She spent her whole life amassing power. She schemed, she killed, she used her bedroom. And now her son is squandering the fruits of her efforts for mere carnal pleasures. It is not far-fetched to assume that she makes her displeasure known. Agrippina had a talk with her son. But that talk did not go over well, and son and mother had a falling out. But Nero quickly regretted his harsh words. The heartbroken son could not stand the thought of being on no talking terms with his beloved mother. He wrote her a tearful letter, promised to behave better, to be the son she always wanted, to make her proud, and... He invited her to come to his villa in the Bay of Naples so they could reconcile once and for all and no more hard feelings. He even sent one of his fastest ships to fetch her, to fly her over the waves and bring her to him because so deep was his regret over their falling out. And as Agrippina heads to the Bay of Naples, suddenly she hears a sound. A sound that is concerning and disturbing. A sound that a sound ship shouldn't make. And while she wonders what that sound may be, the crew abandons the ship. They take a raft or a boat and take off. And the slaves that are chained to the oar scream and riot because water floods the hull. The ship is going down and Agrippina knows this is no accident. Going down with the boat is the last gift from her loving son Nero.
Agrippina is nothing but a survivor and a stronger swimmer than expected. She is not giving up, but she makes for the shore. Maybe she remembers while she swims for her life that she went to a fortune teller once. He told her that her son would become emperor, but that he would kill her. At the time, she said that would be okay as long as he would become emperor. As she fights with the waves, she might regret that sentiment. Agrippina defied her son and did not drown. We are not sure if she plotted revenge because Nero dispatched an old-fashioned assassin before she could get back at her ungrateful son. The killer did nothing elaborate but stabbed her to death with a knife. At her request, Nero's henchmen stabbed her in the womb first, that part of her body which gave birth to the ultimate mad emperor of history. But she did not die completely. Even though Nero buried her, from the moment of her death, she haunted Nero's nightmares. He frequently saw her ghost roaming the halls of his palace. She followed him wherever he went and soured his sleepless nights. He sent for Persian magicians to get rid of her, but even with all their magical powers, they could not silence Agrippina's angry ghost. She stayed with him until nine years later, Nero met his own violent end. The major sources about Nero's reign are the Roman writers Tacitus, Suetonius and Cassius Dio. They write decades after Nero's death, using hearsay, rumors and secondary sources. Through their writings, Nero's notoriety enters recorded history. However, some modern historians have come to question the validity of Nero's traditional historical profile. The most comprehensive treatment of Nero's case might be offered by John Drinkwater, an emeritus professor of Roman history at the University of Nottingham. His book Nero, Emperor and Court, portrays Nero not as a murderous tyrant, but as a young man who is reluctant to fulfill his duties and responsibilities as emperor. Instead of ruling the empire, he is more inclined to demonstrate his genuine skills as a sportsman and artist. It seems to drink water that Nero might not have been a fan of Roman blood sports in gladiator combat. That might sound positive to us, but to ancient Romans it sounds rather strange. Drinkwater writes that others reign Nero's name prominently, his mother and some ministers. And it seems that even Nero-critical historians of ancient Rome have to admit that Nero had indeed some artistic and athletic talent. It seems that Nero was able to drive a racing chariot with some success, which would be the ancient equivalent to a Formula One car. Suetonius writes that Nero practiced hard to get good at singing. 
Nero undertook all the usual exercises for strengthening and developing his voice. He would also lie on his back with a slab of lead on his chest, use enemas and emetics to keep down his weight. He refrained from eating apples and every other food considered deleterious to the vocal cords. For those who do not suffer from an eating disorder, enemas are injections of fluids to cleanse or stimulate the emptying of bowels. Emetics are substances that cause vomiting. It seems he was nothing but determined. According to Suetonius, all that hard work led nowhere. In contrast, Roman poet Martial liked Nero's verses. And the fragments of Nero's writings that we still have don't sound like the deranged dilettantism of Justinus Nero. It seems that Nero tried to be a serious artist. However, in ancient Roman eyes, that was not an appropriate use of an emperor's time. The Romans wanted an iron fist, not a silver tongue. As we have already seen, people were killed at Nero's court. Among them really famous ones like Seneca, who was part of the Pisonian conspiracy. That was another plot to assassinate Nero, because according to the conspirators, the emperor increasingly went off the rails. But Seneca was far from the only one who had the pleasure to be murdered by Nero. There are countless victims whose names are lost to the fog of history. But intrigue, murder and assassination are business as usual for every Roman emperor. Murdering people comes with a territory. All dynastic powers throughout the world and throughout all history get challenged by people who think it would be better if they would occupy the throne. And those differences in opinion always get resolved with knives or poison or other killing implements. Either the king or emperor or whatever the title may be dies or the challenger gets killed. Many of the still reigning houses of Europe didn't get to their elevated positions because of their good looks. No, they got there by murder and betrayal. Killing was and is simply part of dynastic politics. Eventually, also Nero falls victim to that dynamic. His generals Vindex and Galba start a revolt. The Roman Senate sees an opportunity and declares Nero an enemy of the state. They wanted to kill him by beating him to death. Nero contemplated fleeing to Parthia, Rome's arch enemy in the east. Then he considers throwing himself at the feet of Galba, one of the leaders of the rebellion who would indeed become the new emperor days later. Nero had the brilliant idea to offer Galba to vacate the throne in exchange for the governorship of Egypt. Finally, he had the idea to take his case public and beg the people of Rome for mercy. But he wasn't sure if they wouldn't tear him to pieces before he could step onto the rostra on the forum to deliver a well-composed speech that he hoped would convince them. Nero's future looked increasingly bleak. Seeing the way things went down, Nero's Praetorian guard abandoned him and left him sitting alone in the palace. Accordingly, his friends ignored his calls to rally to his defense. In the end, suicide was the only solution, a time-honored Roman tradition for a failed tyrant to leave the stage of life 
with his honor intact. And so Nero called for a gladiator with a sword to do the deed, but no gladiator came. Then he tried to throw himself into the Tiber. That didn't work either. Eventually, he hid in the country estate of one of his freedmen. It was after sundown that they heard horsemen approach in the distance. It was clear to them that the Senate had dispatched a posse to get Nero. This was finally the end of the road for Nero. In a situation like this, it would be Roman tradition to fall onto one's sword. With a determined gesture, Nero drew his sword and is supposed to have said, What an artist dies with me! Staring at the cold steel of the blade, Nero couldn't bring himself to actually fall on it. Instead, he asked his companions to set a good example and kill themselves first. They declined to do so. Eventually, he managed to persuade his private secretary to put him out of his misery. The man stabbed him. However, some ancient writers say he did it himself after all. the riders appeared on the scene, it turned out that the horsemen of the Senate were indeed tasked to bring him back, but not to kill him, but to work out a compromise with the Senate. Because Nero was not available anymore, the Senate took the pragmatic step to declare Galba to be the new emperor. His reign lasted a mere six months. Then Galba was swept away by the next rebellion. Compared to that short stint on the imperial throne, Nero's story is an absolute success story. The central event in Nero's reign was the Great Fire of Rome in the year 64 AD that destroyed much of the city. In a windy night of July in 64, Fire breaks out in merchant shops near the Circus Maximus, the flammable goods are stored. Whether accidental or treacherously contrived by the emperor is uncertain, as authors have given both accounts. Tacitus Annals, Book 15. Rome has an organized hybrid of fire brigade and police force called the Vigidi. They were created by Augustus in the year 6 AD. Most of the time, the Vigilis don't try to extinguish the flames. Rome is full of insulae, densely built-up city blocks that were as high as houses only would be again in 19th century London. All the Vigilis have is buckets and blankets, and they don't have a chance to fight a serious fire with equipment like that. So when fire breaks out, the Vigilis tear down nearby buildings to stop the fire from spreading. However, in the July of 64, they don't have a chance. The night is windy and the fire quickly spreads through the densely built-up city streets. The blaze in its fury ran first through the level portions of the city, then rising to the hills. While it again devastated every place below them, it outstripped all preventive measures. 
So rapid was the mischief and so completely at its mercy the city, with those narrow winding passages and irregular streets which characterized old Rome. Added to this were the wailings of terror-stricken women, the feebleness of age, the helpless inexperience of childhood, the crowds who sought to save themselves or others, dragging out the infirm or waiting for them, and by their hurry in the one case, by their delay in the other, aggravating the confusion. Often, while they looked behind them, they were intercepted by flames on their side or in their face. Tacitus, Annals Book 15. It burns for six days before the Vigilis get it under control. But then the fire ignites again and burns another three days. In the end, two-thirds of Rome are destroyed. Ancient writers like Cassius Dio, Suetonius and Tacitus blame Nero for the fire. Nero at this time was at Antium and did not return to Rome until the fire approached his house, which he had built to connect the palace with the gardens of Messinus. It could not, however, be stopped from devouring the palace, the house, and everything around it. However, to relieve the people, driven out homeless as they were, he threw open to them the Campus Martius and the public buildings of Agrippa, and even his own gardens, and raised temporary structures to receive the destitute multitude. Supplies of food were brought up from Ostia and the neighboring towns, and the price of corn was reduced to three sesterces a peck. These acts, though popular, produced no effect, since a rumor had gone forth everywhere that at the very time when the city was in flames, the emperor appeared on a private stage and sang of the destruction of Troy, comparing present misfortunes with the calamities of antiquity. Tacitus Annals Book 15. Ancient historians reported that Nero watched the fire from the Esquiline Hill, and it seems that some singing was involved. Considering all the evidence as far as that is still possible, it seems likely that Nero did not burn Rome to inspire his poetry, but that he might have burned it down to rebuild it. If that is true and he wanted to build a new Rome, he had to get rid of the old Rome first. Tacitus writes Nero was aiming at the glory of founding a new city and calling it by his name. Would that have been Neropolis? This kind of megalomaniac inclinations are typical for ancient despots and modern authoritarians alike. Nero would be in great company. Alexander the Great inspired power-hungry Romans ever since he conquered the East and died young enough to become a legend. He famously named the city after himself that became one of the centers of the ancient Mediterranean world, Alexandria. Close to the Colosseum is an archaeological excavation. The arena was built by the Flavians, who were the next dynasty that managed to murder themselves onto the imperial throne in the chaos that Nero left in his wake. Here, archaeologists uncover what is left of Nero's attempt to set his glory into stone, his palace, which was aptly named the Golden House. It must have been an impressive structure that was decked out with all the luxury the ancient world had to offer. His wastefulness showed most of all in the architectural projects. Parts of the house were overlaid with gold and studded with precious stones and mother-of-pearl. 
All the dining rooms had ceilings of fretted ivory, the panels of which could slide back and let a rain of flowers or perfume from hidden sprinklers shower upon his guests. Suetonius, the Twelve Caesars. Nero is supposed to have commented, Good, now I can at least begin to live like a human being. The emperors who came after Nero saw Nero's palace as an embarrassment, a symbol of decadence and depravity. To distance themselves, they tried to wipe the golden house from the face of the earth. Vespasian built the Colosseum on one part, and Trajan filled what was left with dirt and built his bath on top of it. It worked. Nero's golden house was forgotten until, in the 15th century, a young Roman fell into a cleft on the Esquiline Hill. Suddenly he found himself in a cave that was full with colorful statues and marvelous wall paintings. They were of a style that we recognize from their excavations in Pompeii and Aquilanum. As the Golden House was earlier, it might be that Nero's extravagance was not just decadent, but also transcendent. It seemed to have influenced the decorating style that would be copied throughout the empire. Among many architectural treasures, the Golden House features an octagonal dining room with a vaulted ceiling crowned by an opening, the oculus, that illuminates the structure with natural light. For the time, that was a bold technical innovation. The Pantheon has a similar ceiling, but Nero was the first to construct one. We actually know the men who were responsible for this architectural masterpiece. The directors and contrivers of the work were Severus and Seller, who had the genius and the audacity to attempt by art even what nature had refused, and to fool away an emperor's resources. Tacitus, Annals Book 15. However bold Nero's new Rome was, People tend to get angry when someone burns their houses down, especially when they're still inside. So to appease the anger of the populace, Nero needed someone to blame. He chose the Christians. They were a group that was large enough, so their existence was known to the Roman people. And because the Christians refused to take part in the civic religion of Rome, the Romans hated them enough so that no one would be too sorry if they ended up as lunch for lions. The aftermath of the fire gave rise to the first widespread government-organized Christian persecution in the Roman Empire. Throughout Roman history, Christian persecutions were frequent, usually spontaneous mob violence that was confined locally. It seems to be in the human nature that bottled-up frustration sometimes needs a violent outlet. That's when minorities and outsiders are led to the slaughter. May they be Christian in the Roman Empire or Jews in medieval Europe. Bloodletting of the innocent seems to appease the grievances of angry mobs. Widespread government-organized persecutions of Christians happened in the Roman Empire, but they were rather rare occasions. Persecution of Christians finally ceased in the year 313 AD with the Edict of Milan, which conferred legal status on the Christians. Here's Tacitus. To get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Crestians by the populace. 
Crestus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, in a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Tacitus Annals Book 15 Romans don't do their public executions in a clinical fashion like we do when, behind prison walls, delinquents are injected with a lethal mix of chemicals, so it looks to the witnesses as if the convict would painlessly transition from life to death. In contrast, Romans like their executions bloody and painful. The more torture, the more entertaining the spectacle. Blood sport that involves death and suffering is a reenactment of the Roman worldview. Equality, neighbor love and peace are not Roman categories of thought. They are Christian ideas. Ideas that will become the foundation of the Western world. Romans believe in steep and pronounced hierarchies. The gods destined Rome to rule, and so they rule, not by persuasion, but with an iron fist. The Pax Romana, the Roman peace, is a piece of the graveyard. You bow to Rome, or the legions teach you a lesson in blood. But if you bow, you can become part of the Roman project. You just have to give up what makes you culturally distinct and turn yourself into a Roman. Wear a toga. Worship the Roman pantheon. Find your place in the Roman social order. Forget what you have done before and do as the Romans do. All cities in the empire look the same, be they in Britain or in Syria. All cities have their same institutions, forum, temple, amphitheater, and bloody spectacles. The world is at Rome's mercy, as are the convicts in the arena. They die because the Romans like to see them die. No one is more powerful than those who can wipe out whole peoples because they feel like it. The bloody spectacles of Rome assure the poor Roman masses that despite their destitution, they are still part of a power that rules the world. That is the will of the gods. And to kill the Christians, Nero gets really creative. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle and was exhibiting a show in the circus, while he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer or stood aloft on a car. Hence, even for criminals who deserved extreme and exemplary punishment, there arose a feeling of compassion, for it was not as it seemed for the public good, but to glut one man's cruelty that they were being destroyed. T Tacitus, Annals Book 15. Persecutions were an important part of the reality of the early church that shaped a distinct and subversive counterculture. Martyrdom. Dying for the faith in Jesus Christ was seen as a direct way into the bliss of heaven. That is why most Christians spoiled the fun for the Roman masses that wanted to be entertained. The victims in the arena are supposed to be afraid. They scream, cry, plead for mercy. That's fun! And then the Romans laugh and place bets on how long it takes for someone to die on the cross or 
which lion eats which Christian first. But the Christians defied those expectations. Christians sang hymns, prayed and died without fear. The Romans were frequently disappointed when Christians were led to the slaughter. Legend has it that the apostles Peter and Paul were also killed during Nero's persecutions. We have no original sources that report how they found their end. But according to those legends, Peter tried to flee the city. But he met the resurrected Jesus on the Via Appia, and he said to him, Domine, quo vadis? Where are you going, my Lord? And Jesus answered, If you are not tending to my flock, I will have to do it myself. And then Peter turned around and went back into the city, knowing quite well that martyrdom would await him. The novel and the film take their name from this legend. Peter was crucified three months after the disastrous fire on the Dies Imperii, the Empire Days, the celebration of the 10th anniversary of Nero ascending to the throne. Peter was crucified on the Vatican Hill in the gardens of Nero. According to his wishes, he was crucified with his head down because he felt not worthy to die in the same manner as Jesus. He found his grave nearby. Today, the Cathedral of St. Peter stands over that spot. Archaeological evidence points to an ancient pilgrimage site that was below where St. Peter's main altar stands today. The Roman Catholic Church says that the human remains that were found below the altar are those of the Apostle. Archaeologists say, mm, maybe. Paul was arrested in Judea and then shipped to Rome to plead his case to the emperor, as was his right as a Roman citizen. Some ancient legends say that he actually met Nero at some point. And if he did, then Nero decided his case in the negative. Paul stayed in Rome under house arrest for several years, and he was executed some time after the fire of Rome, but before the end of Nero's reign. As he was a Roman citizen, he was spared crucifixion. Instead, he was killed most likely by beheading, as that was a method of execution reserved for Roman citizens. However, some church fathers write he was stoned to death. Legend tells us that his severed head bounced back three times. In the places where the head touched the ground, three springs appeared. Today, one of the oldest churches in Rome stands on the place, San Paolo alle Tre Fontane, Paul and the Three Fountains. His body was buried outside of the city of Rome in the three-mile marker of the Ostian Way in a family tomb of a Roman woman called Matrona Lucilla. His grave was there until the 4th century. Then the first Christian emperor of Rome, Constantine, built a church at this place, the Basilica of Paul outside the walls. His remains were moved into the crypt of the church. Archaeological excavations in 2006 found human remains that dated back to the first century. Archaeologists concluded that the tomb might indeed be the authentic burial place of the Apostle Paul.
Nero's reign still resonates even 2,000 years later. On every Good Friday, the day on the Christian calendar when the Christian world commemorates the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, Christians gather at the place where Nero's house once stood. The Bishop of Rome, commonly known as a Pope, celebrates a service called the Stations of the Cross. It's a liturgical reenactment of Jesus' last day on earth. The ritual begins with Jesus being sentenced to death and ends with Jesus being placed in the tomb. Traditionally, the assembly moves in solemn procession through 14 stations where special episodes of Jesus' way from life to death are remembered. The place, Nero's house, where this service takes place is significant. After Nero's death, the Flavians built their amphitheater there, the Colosseum. It is still one of the largest structures in Rome, purpose-built for the bloody spectacles that were central to Roman life. It is a place where animals and humans died for the entertainment of the mob, Exotic animals were released into the arena and hunted by gladiators. The masses especially enjoyed the moments when a predator like a big cat or a bear turned the tables and managed to kill one of the hunters. Gladiators fought to death, criminals were executed, and the first Christians were martyred. Even though other locations like the Circus Maximus saw more Christians being slaughtered, this place, the Colosseum, became the symbol for the persecution of Christians. The blood-soaked ground of the Colosseum gives the Good Friday liturgy a special quality. The sounds of the prayers and chants resonate with the weight of centuries. Celebrants use gestures that have been used in the same ritual for centuries. The whole celebration seems like a bridge that spans millennia and connects the faithful directly to their ancestors in faith who were killed in this arena. Where today the sound of the liturgy fills the air, the last thing they heard was a blood-drunken roar of the masses as wild beasts were unleashed on them when they were crucified or tortured to death in more ways than a sensitive soul dares to imagine. The faces of the Pope and the assembly display that they feel that special connection to the place where the martyrs died for the same faith in the men of Galilee that the assembly professes. If that notion is historically correct, it's irrelevant as the assembly moves through the ancient arena. There is a palatable emotional connection to the suffering these stones have witnessed. On this day, in the Colosseum, the Roman Empire is not dead, gone and forgotten. On Good Friday, the Empire is alive. The faith that sustained the martyrs to face their violent end seems to reach through time and to also infuse hope into the lives of those who follow Jesus Christ through a modern and increasingly secular world.
Even though Nero is gone for nearly 2,000 years, he still haunts our collective memory. If his reputation matches, historical reality is uncertain. He is a pop culture icon and he's a stone of contention in academic circles. He's still cursed, ridiculed, and serves as an example how the dark side of the human character drives people to insanity and cruelty. In some way, he achieved immortality. Would he be happy about that? Who knows? Thanks for listening. Please like, share and subscribe and tune into the next episode. For now, farewell and goodbye.